Father, we ask this morning as we uh, start in the book of Nehemiah that you would uh, show us what you want us to see as we consider this one man in your plans and in your purposes. Uh, Show us where he was godly and where he wasn't and help us to learn from his example. Uh, Show us about you and your plans and your purposes in the world and to understand what you were doing then that would teach us about Jesus and how we might live in response to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, who has heard of the book of Nehemiah before? Okay, who, as a spot quiz, could tell me what it's about? I'm not going to ask you to tell me, but I just want to see the hands, right? Significantly less. Nehemiah is one of those books that people tend to make a lot of different things about it. Uh, I was looking during the week and I found one just absolute corker of a sermon preached on Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. It was a sermon preached just before the inauguration of Donald Trump. It was preached at the church service that he attended. And I I want to read a little bit of it for you. Uh, Here is what the the preacher had to say. God has raised you, President-elect Trump, up for a great eternal purpose. When I think of you, Trump, I am reminded of another great leader that God chose thousands of years ago in Israel. The nation had been in bondage for decades. The infrastructure of the country was in shambles. And God raised up a powerful leader to restore the nation. The man God chose was neither a politician nor a priest. Instead, God chose a builder whose name was Nehemiah. Some of you know where this is going. And the first step of rebuilding the nation was the building of a great wall. God instructed Nehemiah to build a wall around Jerusalem to protect its cities from enemy attack. You see, God is not against building walls, the preacher said. We can do better than that, can't we? And yet, and yet, it is surprising how often Nehemiah is treated as a manual for how to do a building project. Is your church going to knock down the hall and build a new one? You need to preach on Nehemiah and you will learn how to do the 12 steps you need to get the building project complete. I'm kind of not kidding. There are books written that treat Nehemiah as the manual. Now, it's kind of problematic given that the wall gets finished by halfway through the book, so it's not kind of about it. Others treat the book as a leadership manual. Do you want to learn how to lead people? Do you want to know how to get them to do exactly what you want them to do and think that it's what they wanted to do? Well, then you need to read Nehemiah. Again, I I think you're missing the point. See, Nehemiah, like the rest of the Bible, is simply a book of God and his people. It's a book about God for his people. It's a book about one man and his place in that purpose. It's a book about one man's passion for God, for God's purposes, for God's work. About one man's passion for God's people, in God's place, living God's way. That is the book of Nehemiah. And what I want us to consider this morning is to wonder, what might our lives look like? What might your life look like if we shared Nehemiah's passion? 
So we're going to read through uh, the first two chapters of Nehemiah, in fact, but let's start in chapter 1. Uh, look, you'll find it helpful to have the Bible open, page 469 in the Pew Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now let's see what it is that stirs Nehemiah's passion so much. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, and he says this, In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the provinces are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart breaks as he hears the news of the state of Jerusalem, the walls destroyed, the gate burnt. He sits down and he cries, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. The dwindling numbers, the danger to God's people. Now to understand his, his grief, his passion, we've got to understand the context. Now we're starting the book, so I want to situate it for you in the history of the Bible. We'll try and do it fairly succinctly. And to understand the context of what's happening with Nehemiah, we need to go right back to Genesis 12 and 17. I mean, you can go right back to Genesis 1 if you want. But in Genesis 12 and 17, God made a whole bunch of really important promises to this random ancient Near East man called Abram, whose name later gets changed to Abraham. And God promised Abraham that his descendants would become this nation, this mighty, powerful country through whom God was going to bless the entire world. It's quite an astonishing promise to make to a man, especially one who had no kids at the time. But anyway, God said, you're going to have a son, going to become a nation, and that nation, Israel, well, it kind of seemed to come true. In fact, if you move forward to 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to Israel, to the king, and he said that the king of Israel was going to reign over God's people for eternity. It, it, the promises just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when you get to 1 Kings chapter 8, it seemed like the promises had been met. God's king, a man named Solomon, was reigning over Israel in a period of peace. God brought rest to his people in a period of wealth, extraordinary wealth. God had given this man great wisdom and Solomon built a house for God. He built the temple and the glory of God came in and filled the temple. And he was God living amongst his people. The nations were coming to see. It seemed like the promises had been fulfilled. Except it didn't last very long. And even just Solomon's sons split the kingdom. One went south, one got the north. And it wasn't long before Israel entered into disobedience and God brought first Assyria and then Babylon to destroy them. Nothing left. The temple was gone. The altar destroyed, the wall torn down. God's people carted off 
Did God's promises fail? Was God's word not enough? If God was going to reveal himself to the whole world through one nation, and now that nation is gone, does it mean that nobody in the world is ever going to be able to find God? Is his glory gone forever from the earth? Can God accomplish his purposes? Can he even protect his own people? Can God reward those who serve him? You see the kind of questions that Nehemiah is facing. It's a real existential crisis. Now, if you have a little look on the back of your handout, which I hope you got one on the way in. Uh, Sorry, the text is really small. That's kind of how it came out. I didn't give you your magnifying glass warning. But you should at least be able to see the colours. And you can see the blue line is is kind of history, uh, Chronicles, and then Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. And you'll see that Nehemiah is right at the end. As you work down this, it's chronological. It's the history that happened. So even though Nehemiah is sort of in the middle of the Old Testament for us, it really is the very end of the story of God's people in the Old Testament. Can God keep his promises? Is God's word trustworthy? Nehemiah heard of the state of God's people and God's place. And he sat down and he wept. His passions were stirred, his heart broken. And what he did, I think, is a great model, great example to us. In that moment, what Nehemiah did, first of all, was pray. He turned to his God. And we see in Nehemiah's prayer four things that Nehemiah knew. Four things that shaped his prayer that I think can and ought to shape ours. So Nehemiah sits down and weeps. The first thing that he knows is he knew his God. Nehemiah knew his God. Verse 5, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, with those who love him and obey his commands. Nehemiah knew God. He knew God to be great and awesome, powerful, majestic, able to fulfill his promises, able to answer his prayers. And furthermore, he knew God as somebody who would keep his covenant, as a promise-making God, one who can be trusted. Is that the God you pray to? Nehemiah knew his God. Nehemiah knew his own sin. Verse 6, O God, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. He's under no illusions about himself. He doesn't think he's coming before God as the righteous man. I'm, I'm going to be the next ruler, God. You're going to use me. Yes. Nehemiah comes before God and says, I'm, I'm a sinner, God. And in fact, not only does he confess his own sin, he identifies with the people of God, with Israel, and says, all of us together, we're all a bunch of sinners. How often do you identify with the people of God when you pray? 
We, we've been taught from very young age individualism. It, it saturates our culture. Uh, who I am and who I determine myself to be is it. That's the reality that I live in. Whereas in God's plans, we are a people together. How often are your prayers shaped by and concerned for the people of God? Nehemiah knew his God. Nehemiah knew his sin and so he confessed it. Nehemiah knew his Bible. Verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. He, he quotes the Bible saying, and he quotes Deuteronomy 30, what we had read, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah, his prayer is very interesting because he says to God, you promised. So would you now please do it? How much better a prayer is that than the ones that we so often seem to come up with, I so often, which are just these vague, generic kind of, oh, I really hope, God, that you might find it nice that you could possibly do this thing that I would like you to do. How different to this man who, whose, whose heart is filled with Scripture, whose mind is shaped by the promises God made. To be able to pray like that is fantastic. Nehemiah knew his God, Nehemiah knew his sin, Nehemiah knew his Bible. And fourthly, Nehemiah knew to be the answer to his own prayer. See what he prays, verse 10. They are Israel, they are your servants, your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. How often is it that we pray and as we pray we become quite conscious and aware that the answer to that prayer is so often found in ourselves. Nehemiah knew to be prepared for that. In fact, that is what he prayed. There is a problem. Israel is disobedient. We are out of the land. Father, give me success. God, give me success as I head this way. Hudson Taylor, the missionary, is quoted as saying, you can work without praying. That's a bad plan. You can't pray without working. And isn't it true, how silly is it to see something right before us, right here, this thing that needs doing, Right, it's right there in front of me. And we pray, God, this, it needs to be done. Please, would you send someone to do this thing that I can see right in front of me that needs doing. And yet we're caught that way in our prayers, aren't we? It's kind of anticlimactic, the end of the prayer. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. It's a strange chapter because up until now we have no idea who Nehemiah is. He's just a random bloke living in Babylon who's a bit upset that Jerusalem's been destroyed. Who is this man? I mean, it's just, what are you talking about, Nehemiah? I just love the punchline. It's just such a setup, that last sentence. Give me success today with this man. I was cupbearer to the king. 
And all of a sudden, the story changes quite a lot. Because this isn't just an average Joe. This is a very highly placed civil servant. This is somebody with the ear of the king. This is a trusted advisor. In fact, this is somebody who can be in the presence of the king and the queen together, we will see. I want to say, don't be afraid to use who you are and what you are and where you are for the sake of God's kingdom. It seems frequently to be the case that Christians will come into church and within church and the ministries of the church, I'm concerned for God's kingdom. And this is right. We should do the things that are about God and let's get on about our God things and and work to further God's purposes. And then as soon as we walk out the door, anything we come across couldn't possibly be about God's kingdom. My work, well, that's, that's a separate thing. I can't... I can't bring God into there. I can't be concerned for God's things while I'm at work. Or our family, I've got to keep that apart. My, my family, that's, that's got to be something else from my... Don't be afraid to use who you are and where you are and what you are for God's purposes, for God's kingdom. Well, Nehemiah's passion is expressed, first of all, in his prayer. And I think we have a lot to learn from this man about praying in response to life, and specifically about praying for God's purposes, God's people in God's place, living God's way. But Nehemiah's passion is also expressed in purpose. There you go, lots of Ps today. Passion expressed in purpose. He acts. He does something. We'll read through chapter 2, and uh, and we'll see where the story ends up. Right, Chapter 2, this is what Nehemiah said. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I hadn't been sad in his presence before. I don't know if Nehemiah was a particularly cheery chap, maybe just always happy about life, or maybe, maybe he was required to kind of paint it on for the sake of the court, whatever it was. And yet here he comes, sad, into the presence of the king. And notice the little bit of the words there that make no sense to us in the month of Nisan. I mean, it's not a car. It's just four months later, four months after he had heard the news, four months after he had prayed, give me success today, he had the opportunity. Now, sometimes prayer takes a while to answer. It's okay when that happens. We need to expect that to be the case. We may want something right now and God knows very well that we need it a little bit later on. Four months later, Nehemiah comes before the king and the king notices he's sad. Verse 2, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. The king clearly knew Nehemiah. You're looking down, buddy, what's happening? And Nehemiah had a little brown pants moment. I was very much afraid. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay. I mean, here's here's the very thing that he prayed for happening in front of him. Here is the opportunity that he wanted. He said, God, something's got to give. And here is the king saying, what's the matter, Nehemiah? Here we go. But it was, it's okay to be afraid. Can you imagine praying for your, your, your loved family member, your, your neighbour, your colleague, and you, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And one day they come up to you and you say, all right, that's it. Tell me, what's all this Jesus stuff about? And you're just like, oh, yes. Or maybe it's like, oh, no. What, what do I say now? It's okay to be afraid. 
And yet Nehemiah, despite his fear, pushes on. I said to the king, verse 3, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? When the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I reckon that was a very different prayer, that second one, to the first one he prayed. In that moment, he didn't kind of say to you, just, okay, give me a sec, I'll answer. Oh, great God, King of heaven. Like it would have just been a help, help, what do I say? That's okay. That prayer's okay. You don't have to have big theological prayers all the time. It's all right sometimes to just say help. And this prayer, I take it, God answers immediately. He took four months for the previous one. This one, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried that I can rebuild it. And the king with the queen sitting next to him asked, well, how long is it going to take? When are you coming back? It pleased the king to send me. So I did set a time. Now we'll find out later on, it took 12 years to rebuild the, the walls. I don't know if the king quite was expecting it to be that long when he sent Nehemiah off. Maybe he did the old project management. Right, six months, we'll have it. You, you know, and then you know, we'll just kind of push it on later. I, I don't know. Listen to how bold Nehemiah is. I mean, he could have stopped there, right? Yep, good. The king has said, I can go, I'm off. Verse 7, I also said to him, well, look, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. If, if you don't mind, king, would you, would you mind paying the airfares as well? Can you send me there? Is that all, is that all right? And, and may I have, verse 8, a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, for the city wall, for the residence I will occupy. You, would you mind funding it as well? Is that okay? Is that all right with you? Bold. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. It's a strange turn of phrase. It's not one I use very often. The gracious hand of my God was upon me. How often do we see in the everyday that goes on around us the hand of God? How often do we stop and recognize that what has happened before us is the work of the Almighty? How often do we even realize when God has answered one of our prayers I was reflecting on this and it occurred to me that it's kind of hard to notice when God answers your prayer if you don't remember what you prayed for. Who remembers what they prayed for yesterday? Yeah, I mean, that's not hard. And I reckon even if I didn't remember, I could have a pretty good guess at what I prayed for yesterday. Right? Who remembers what they prayed for on Wednesday? The Wednesday before that? Starting to push it. Who remembers what they prayed four months ago? I wonder if a prayer diary wouldn't help us. A journal. Start writing down what you pray for so that you can look back, leave space so that you can write in. How did God answer that prayer? Or maybe he hasn't yet. I'll keep waiting. I'll keep praying it. Well, he answered this one. That was unexpected. This is how he answered it. How powerful would that be in our conversations with each other 
to teach one another to trust God. If we can say, Monday I prayed in response to the sermon. I, was just, I got down and I prayed. And do you know what happened on Thursday? God, huh, is that amazing? And How powerful would that be in evangelism? To your friends who don't believe there's a God out there, who think that there's nothing. If you could say, I've been praying and you've got to hear what God's been doing. Keep a diary. So Nehemiah, verse 9, I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. He's, he's getting through. And yet, verse 10, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We've got to expect opposition. Don't be surprised by it. Any time the gospel comes into the lives of sinners, do you know what it does? It shows them their sin. And no one likes that. Of course we're going to be opposed. Of course there will always be those who stand against the purposes of God. Sambalat and Tobiah in Ezra had already caused trouble. They'd already caused the building of Jerusalem to cease once before. Artaxerxes himself, this same king, had already forbidden them from rebuilding the temple until he allowed it. Which is perhaps why Nehemiah doesn't mention Jerusalem once in this chapter. It's all the city of my fathers. Maybe he's just trying to slip one under the radar. I don't know, but anyway. We mustn't fear opposition. This is what Nehemiah did. Verse 11. I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. There wasn't enough room for my mount to get through there. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing. As yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, what the king had said. We can do it. The king has said yes. They replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah could have been afraid. These were powerful officials in the surrounding areas that had already caused the building to stop once before. And yet he could say with such confidence, the God of heaven will give us success. 
I don't know how Nehemiah could be so confident. I, I honestly, I don't know. I, I don't think there was a promise by God to him that he was going to be able to rebuild. Uh, in, in fact, throughout the book of Nehemiah, the character of God, that the person of God is not present. God is spoken about and God is spoken to, but unlike other books, we never have those little narrator's comments. God did so and so. God thought so and so. We, we don't get them. We just get Nehemiah's interpretation. How was Nehemiah so certain? Well, I don't know, but I do know that Nehemiah trusted God. He trusted him. That was where his confidence was placed, in the Almighty. You can come against me if you like, Sambalat and Tobias and Geshem. You, you can bring whatever you want, but you are nothing compared to my God and I will trust in him. Where's your passion? Where's your passion? I, I had trouble when I came back to Australia. I came back to Australia at the end of 1998. Uh, I'd spent 13 years in Argentina and South America. And I had real difficulty when I came back with Australians, particularly with Anglo-Australians. I know that there's all sorts of Australians, but particularly with Anglo-Australians. See, Argentinians are just so passionate. They care. And you know that they care. I mean, you just, you just got to go and watch a football match. You go, well... Real football, right? Foot and ball, not hand egg, which is our football, but football, right? And, right? They will riot if they lose. They care. You know they care. The team that I support, uh, River Plate, uh, ha went through the utter ignominy uh, in, in 2010, I think it was, of being relegated to the second division. It was, it was astonishing. And they showed on the TV pictures of these grown men, middle-aged, kind of, you know, arms around each other, walking through the streets, tears streaming down their face, crying out in anguish, they've crushed my soul. And they're just passionate people. They're passionate about their religion. Just last month, uh, there's, there's a yearly get-together in one of the suburbs of Buenos Aires. 30 years ago, a woman claims that the Virgin Mary appeared to her and delivered a message to her. So, so they do every year, they do a little ceremonial, a little remembrance procession just in case she comes back and wants to tell us some more things. And they still do it this year. They did it last year, this little procession. Uh, 300,000 people. I had trouble. I came back to Australia and I didn't know. Is it that... I mean, maybe we just don't show that we care. Or maybe we really just don't care. That kind of cold, indifferent, very, very British. Now, I don't want to come here and tell you this morning that you've got to become like an Argentinian. You don't, right? That, that's just not go there. It's not about how you express your passion. It's not about how you show that you care, although there's a time and a place for that. My question for you this morning is be honest with yourself. Do you care? Do you care about God's purposes? Do you care about God's people in God's place, living God's way? It's up to you to answer that. How is that passion expressed? Well, I want to suggest to you that like Nehemiah, 
Our passion should also be expressed in prayer and then in purpose as we act in response. See, we don't have a promise from God like Israel did that in repentance they would get to go back and rebuild, that once again things would come about. Although as it turned out, even that wasn't the true promise. The promise we have is that in the Lord Jesus, God has fulfilled his promises. That blessing that was to go out to all of the nations, it's come in the Lord Jesus. The glory of God himself, it doesn't sit in a house, it doesn't sit in a building, it sits in the Lord Jesus and his people as he gathers them to himself and therefore to each other. That's the promise you and I have. That's the promise to cling to, that right now God is bringing his people in, that he might bring this world to an end and take us to the next. Are you passionate like Nehemiah was passionate? Then pray and be filled with purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is sure, that your promises haven't failed, that even through the history of Israel, the disobedience that kept coming up time and time again, you still brought about what you had in mind. The Lord Jesus, the true Israel, in whom your glory was fully found, dying, rising to new life, that blessing might flow out to the ends of the world, including us. Father, change our hearts to care, to care for you and for your purposes, to care for your people gathered to you by Jesus. Make us people of prayer who know you, who know our own sin and ask for forgiveness in Jesus, who know your promises and cling to them, who pray, being prepared, to be the answer. And we ask this, Father, for your glory, that in us and through us, that in Ingleburn and Macquarie Fields and Glenfield and Panorama and Long Point and Minto and Lumia and everywhere around us, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be honoured as the Saviour and as the Lord. And we ask this in his name. Amen.